Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Just because February is a shorter month than most doesn't mean we have any fewer books for you to read. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books. This month, we have seven great reviewers joining us to tell us about what they've been reading. And we've got two big interviews, one with the author of a smash hit bestseller called Thrive, and the other about an exciting literary event taking place in Cape Town this March. All punctuated by wonderful music, curated and compiled by Rick Everett and Dave Wood. Enough chatter, it's time for some reading. Welcome to the show, Beryl Eichenberger. I got so excited when you said you wanted to review How to Be a Revolutionary by C.A. Davids. I saw that the Book Lounge in Cape Town rated this book as their book of the year for last year. There are many books about apartheid South Africa, some being discarded as too much, too many. But reading C.A. Davids' novel, How to Be a Revolutionary, is not in that genre, even with its activism, struggle politics, tragedy and TRC. She has brought into sharp perspective the melding of past and present, the influence that being a revolutionary has on a future life, and how so many strive to bury the past in order to live in the present. I remember Caroline some years ago. She was a fierce arts activist and a formidable communications colleague. Her writing was being shaped then, and now, when I read this extraordinary novel, I was struck by her innovative use of words to describe the scenes and settings of this story that moves across China, South Africa and the USA. She sets the stage for us to view from the curtains of the pages with mesmerizing poetic writing. It is no surprise that the Book Lounge voted How to Be a Revolutionary its Book of the Year. But it is the questions she raises that makes the reader stop and think deeply. What price activism? What price truth? And what is trust? As much as we fight for freedom, are we ever free? Davis weaves several stories into the narrative. Some appear quite disparate, but it is the writer's skill that allows them to converge into the one as they trace such similar paths, race, adherence to laws, controlling governments, and those that defy. As the reader, it is the parallels that intrigue, the realisation that locked in our South African bubble, we maybe were oblivious to struggles and wars being fought in the name of freedom in so many countries. Significant dates are identified, 1989 and Tiananmen Square, 1989 and student unrest in Cape Town, the 1950s of America and of China, each bringing an important era into the mix. The book opens in Shanghai, when Beth is a newly arrived consul in the SA diplomatic mission. She's divorced, lonely, and yet wanting to be alone. Her disillusionment with the SA government she fought for is cracking wide open, her marriage to Andrew fading into the background as she forges ahead with a career that allows her an escape but no longer satisfies her. She is adrift. The sounds of Shanghai ring in her ears as she adjusts to this humming city, but it is the repetitive beat of typewriter keys, always amplified around 1am, that stir her nightly. And with that beat comes an unlikely and unusual friend. Huang Shao is a former high-ranking party journalist who stoically denies that he's typing, but becomes her link to the city and the Chinese past. They find a common interest in the writings of Langston Hughes and his fictitious letters to a South African friend. It is an intriguing triangle of characters, 
each one a revolutionary in their own right, and Davids explores the price that each one pays for their outspokenness. Piece by interlocking piece, she builds a rich and varied story. As Beth navigates what will become a search for Charles when he disappears, and the translation of chunks of manuscripts which arrives through her mail slot in the middle of the night, her past also rises up to meet her. Her own secrets and those she seeks to unravel are pulled to the surface. As a struggle student, drawn into the swirl by the charismatic Kay, she is forced to understand the nature of betrayal. This is a compelling story, written with empathy and deep understanding. I was loath to finish it, as each of the characters had made an indelible impression on me. David's brings us into the heart of the dilemma we face when injustice prevails, and her narrative is cleverly shaped as she uses first-person Beth in the beginning, swings to third-person Beth for her past. Jao tells his own story in the search for his mother after the Great Famine, the Langston Hughes experience of his blackness in Harlem and Shanghai in the 1950s reminds us of the many injustices still faced in the world. Perhaps that is what David's is conveying. What disguise has justice taken on? Read carefully. This is a haunting story that is both provocative and probing. Highly recommended. How to Be a Revolutionary is by C. A. David's and is published by Umuzi. Our second review now comes from Shirley Guella, who read Haven by Emma Donahue. If this author's name sounds familiar, that's because she wrote the best-selling smash hit Room. You remember that one? It sold millions of copies and was turned into a movie. The remarkable thing for me about this author is how she explores so many different genres and eras in her writing. This book, for example, takes us back to seventh-century Ireland. Having been riveted by Emma Donoghue's room, thanks to the intensity of the writing, despite the sheer horror of the event that inspired it, I was looking forward with great anticipation to Haven. Haven is different, very different. But both novels are about resilience and adversity, and both are about captors. Although in this case the monster is a scholar, a priest, a leader, and in fact a saint. A motley crew, if ever there was one, sets sail in the seventh century down the Shannon River in Ireland and drifts out into the Atlantic Ocean, intent on finding the perfect, unspoiled, untouched, and of course uninhabited place. The leader, Art, has had a vision to establish a new monastery to the glory of God. Well, one man's vision is another's nightmare. And Donoghue has described the journey into isolation so intensely and so minutely, you wonder what drove two monks to leave the relative security of their original mon- monastery to follow him. Hardly adventurous souls, just obedience, I guess. It's a minimalistic story, from paring down the contents of their boat to travel light, really light, to the endless sea sparkling like a dish to the hungry eyes that surveyed it, the landscape, the aloneness, and ultimately the stark settlements three disparate people recreated on what is now known as Great Skellig. This steep and barren outcrop came to international fame, not as a place of a real monastery, but as a backdrop in the Star Wars movies, and, thanks to relentless tourism, has now been closed to the public. So Donoghue wrote about it with her fertile imagination. The men have nothing but faith and God's breath, the wind, to guide them. Nothing but faith and resolution to sustain them when they are running low on provisions. Nothing but faith in the recitation of a week's worth of psalms and singing hymns to keep their spirits up. 
But the two followers, the aged and damaged Cormac, who only became a monk after his wife and children died in the plague, falters. And the young, untried and inexperienced Trion, gifted by his parents to the monastery when he was only 13 for reasons that will make you want to kill, have not quite so strong a faith. And they also have questions which art won't allow. But united we stand and all that. And actually, it's a lesson in teamwork. Each has to dig deep, mastering the practice of catching birds and fish for food and countless more for fuel. They had to copy the scriptures in uneven hand, become stonemasons to carve a cross, builders to create a chapel, gardeners for obvious reasons, doctors to heal when required, and so the perfection does crumble. An autocrat from the start, it takes a while for the dark side of art to surface, though his frailty as a human was apparent when he lost faith for a minute during a severe storm on the sea, and because his ego told him he could improve the cross sculpted and and broke off one of the arms. His penance was to stand for hours in the position of Christ on the cross. I didn't even feel sorry for him. Demanding and questioning obedience, this hard-driven man shows his true side when he destroys the music pipe the young tree unwhittled. He's rather like a galley slave driver keeping the pair of monks wedded to what he assigned them, relenting much later to allow them to build a shelter for themselves in the face of the oncoming northern winter as even the birds abandoned them. The relationships so dependent one upon the other are severely tested as are their vows the ones that Cormac and Trian took to stay together with art in what we would surely call a godforsaken hellhole. For a while I envied them their faith, but with hindsight I am not so sure. It's not an easy read, but the writing is so good, the psychological impact so profound, that it is a really good one, a story of fanaticism and penitence, of dogma and belief, and perhaps ultimately of failure. In many ways it gives one hope for a post-apocalyptic world after the earth has been destroyed.
That was All I Ask of You by the Hungarian Trio. And you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. We're delighted to have Leanne Voicey back on the microphone this month to review Catastrophe by Ian Sutherland. We're all familiar with method actors and their extreme dedication. Robert De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix, for example, have woven magic spells with their portrayals, transporting us to believable, make-believe worlds. Less familiar are the method writers, and Ian Sutherland is doubtlessly one of them. Sutherland, a South African currently living in Cape Town, has set Catastrophe, his second novel, in the Ukraine, following the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear power plant explosion. His preparation for this undertaking began that very year as his mechanical engineering class used what was unfolding as a real-time case study. Later, in 2016, he was commissioned to write an article reflecting on the 30th anniversary of the calamity, and this slow-burning interest grew into a fire which grew into a work-in-progress novel. Sutherland further immersed and familiarized himself with his characters by taking Russian language lessons and visiting the Ukraine several times to fact-check and do research. All this schlep and slog was surely worth it, as I often found myself reading the text in a strong Russian accent while reaching for the vodka from Russian ballerinas, the KGB, root vegetables, sinister nosy neighbors, and Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. This novel transports the reader to a particularly frightening time and place in our history, which presented a loud and clear lesson just begging to be learnt. The writer uses tight prose within a tight time frame to cleverly create a sense of urgency and panic. The few days surrounding the nuclear meltdown are expressed in letters written decades later by a dying woman. This writing device allows hindsight and retrospection to add depth and context to a chaotic event. Overall, the book has an underlying cynical tone, which is probably the only acceptable tone the subject matter can possess. The themes are even more relevant today, as our fragile existence is laid bare before the whims and decisions of a few. Catastrophe by Ian Sutherland is published by Vindigo Press and is available on Kindle as an e-book. Our next guest reviewer is Rachel van der Feyfer. Rachel is in grade nine at Rustenburg High School, and she's been reading some of the latest young adult fiction that's out right now. Rachel, we're all wishing you a smooth glide through grade nine. I'm so impressed that despite a tough study schedule, you always find the time to read. Sarah Daniels' The Stranded is a YA dystopian novel set in a post-apocalyptic future. Forty years ago, the Arcadia was left stranded after war broke out in Europe, and biological weapons were released, leading to an outbreak of the virus. Then a luxurious cruise ship, now home to thousands of refugees, desperate to leave the ship, but unable to reach the Federated States, a country that doesn't want them, but won't let them leave. Esther is loyal to the Federated States, desperate for the chance to leave the ship and live on land. Nick is part of the rebellion, determined to free the Arcadia from the Federated States forever. But after Esther is forced to save Nick, their lives become dangerously entangled. The book was quite slow at the beginning, and for me it took a bit too long to get into the action, so it took me a while to really get into it. Once I did, I really enjoyed the book and couldn't put it down. The characters were well-written and believable, and the author uses multiple POVs, which I liked as you're able to see their different perspectives. Overall, I really enjoyed reading the book. The Stranded is the first book in the series, and is a sequel to Exiled, coming out in July, which I definitely will be reading. I'm also currently reading Head Dark Wings by Melinda Salisbury. It is a dark Greek mythology-inspired fantasy, and I haven't gone very far, but it is looking very promising at the moment. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. This next track is Butterfly by Cape Town crooner Harry Curtis.
Oh, it's a sin to catch a butterfly So I won't ever try to keep you in a jar I'll just let you fit and fly around I'll never tie you down Cause that's the way you are Butterfly, I'll set you free But once in a while Please fly home to me All the snow was melted from the ground When you first came around and held me it was spring April showers kept you here with me Was it your love for me or water on your wings? Butterfly I'll set you free once in a while Please make love to me To catch a butterfly So I'll just say goodbye And watch you fly away But should you feel a bite of winter change Come to my windowsill I'll never make you stay Butterfly I'll set you free But once in a while Please come home to me Oh, it's a sin to catch a butterfly So I won't ever try to keep you in a jar I'll just let you flit and fly around I'll never tie you down Cause that's the way you are Butterfly I'll set you free But once in a while Please come home to me It's back to business and some things just work better together like upscaling your business plus VoIP voice calling equals improved cost efficiency. Combine endless fiber for reliable fixed line connectivity with flex on mobile connectivity and optimize business comms with VoIP voice calling all from 717 Rand per month. Visit telcombusiness.co.za forward slash help me choose and we'll help tailor our tools for your business. T's and C's apply. Welcome to Schmidt Hauser Group for all your construction, electrical and plumbing needs. Competitive rates, free quotes and technical expertise come as an inclusive service when using Schmidt Hauser. A family-run business since 1978, we pride ourselves offering top quality and service excellence. Call now on 021-4244-588, available 24-7. Schmidt Hauser Group. Swiss Ingenuity, South African Pride. Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. 
Did you know you'll find all the titles mentioned on today's show at your local exclusive books and thousands more that we weren't able to cram into this hour-long review extravaganza? Basically, if there's a book you're looking for, you'll find it at Exclusive Books. When we need to know about business books, non-fiction and a smidge of self-help, Twanji Kalula has us fully covered here on the show. This month on Book Choice, Twanji was joined in the studio by Richard Sutton. He's the author of this best-selling book called Thrive, The Secrets of Resilience. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that there's been a huge surge in the sale of motivational books right now. I'm very interested in this one. Welcome to the show, Twanji and Richard. So I often giggle when people describe living in South Africa as an extreme sport um, and extreme athletes or as extreme athletes, we definitely need performance coaching, which is why I'm excited to be joined by Richard Sutton, who is the author of Thrive, The Power of Resilience. Now, Richard has worked with leading CEOs, athletes and leaders across the world. And his new book is talking about how we can use resilience to build lives that go beyond survival and are all about thriving as well. And Richard, I wanted to ask you, I'm so fascinated by the concept of linking resilience to thriving because as South Africans, we kind of think of resilience as surviving, just getting through. And we've got a culture as a nation where we get through. How did you kind of make that connection between the two concepts? Well, I think that uh, we, we do relegate ourselves to surviving and uh, life is challenging. It's complex. It's uncertain. And we've come to realize this. And COVID has been that big wake up call. I mean, it's something that's been evolving over many years. But with COVID and, and all the shifts that have taken place and everything that's followed COVID and every event that is likely to ensue in the future, we have to start becoming more strategic about our futures. And our futures are going to be uncertain and they're going to be complex and they're going to be uneasy. And we've got to develop a skill set that not only helps us stand up after we get knocked down, but stand up even stronger every time we get knocked down, moving into the future. Great. Um, and what I wanted to ask you more about was the idea of resilience. So we often think of it as having a stiff upper lip and maybe a bit of a sense of humor. But you kind of have a more holistic definition of what that looks like. Can you tell me what that is? Absolutely. So resilience, we, we've always looked at resilience as almost a, a form of emotional suppression. If you, you know, kind of suppress your emotions and, and, and ignore how you're feeling at any given time that is difficult and challenging, that, that equals res- or equates to resilience, which is not really the case. We also see it as grit and persistence, which are great, admirable traits. But the reality is they're very fixed. And some people are born with the persistence element or born with this ability to emotionally repress, and some aren't. So that kind of disqualifies many people from theoretically being resilient. But the truth is, in the last five years, there's been this massive kind of unearthing and and this clarity that has come to the fore in terms of what resilience is and what is not. And, And the reality is resilience is a set of skills that is underpinned by adaptability. If we can adapt in real time to whatever's going on in our lives and change ourselves and change the way we relate to the world, um, we can overcome pretty much any any challenge that we confront with, any hurdle is, that is placed in our way. So fundamentally, if I were to define resilience, resilience is the ability to adapt to stress, challenge, setbacks, failures, and complexity on a mental, emotional, and physical level. One of the things that really stuck out to me is that when we often talk about personality traits or how we react to the world, we kind of focus on nature versus nurture. And one of the things that stands out in this book is that you kind of delve into both of those concepts and say that, like, actually, we are influenced by both of them, but you take it a step further and say we can change them. Practically, what does changing the the set of circumstances we were born with and how we were raised look like? So, uh, 
it's a very interesting thing because our genetics, what we inherit, what we're born with, contributes to about 50% of our personality. At the end of the day, emotional and, and other elements of our personality are behavioral elements. The environments that we are surrounded by or we live in or immersed in on a day-to-day basis contributes quite significantly as well. Obviously, an equal contribution. Now, the thing is that there are certain characteristics that make us more resilient. So I'll give you an example. Being a little bit more outgoing and extroverted will make us more resilient as opposed to someone who's more insular. Being a little bit more agreeable and, and less confrontational will make us more resilient. If we can get a handle on our emotions, will make us more resilient. If we can be a little more creative and open, we can be more resilient. So there's a lot of individuals who will kind of define themselves as, yes, I'm okay, I understand myself and I am an introvert. I will never be an extrovert and therefore I will struggle in, in challenging situations because my nature is to withdraw. But the reality is you can choose who you are and, and how you respond to situations. You have the choice. I'm the, the, the quintessential introvert. My, my nature is to be become very solitary, very insular, very, very much in my own head, in my own world. And I, I guess many writers are. But my profession is totally extroverted. I speak to thousands of people every year. Thousands. I was about to say, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> thousands of people. But you have the choice. And it takes a bit of time. It takes a little practice. But it, it takes more than anything a conscious decision to choose what you need to be and the reinforcement over time will create that reality. And one of the things that you kind of talk about in the book, use lots of examples of some of the leaders you've worked with and the Olympic teams that you've kind of helped through tournaments. Most of us are never going to operate at that level. So in terms of thriving as just like, you know, an ordinary person, what does that actually look like? What do you mean when you describe thriving? Well, you know, we always see ourselves as kind of different from those high performers that we look up to, that we revere. And the reality is we're no different. I've, I've spent decades in that world. And there are people like you and me who have got exceptional skills, but they've reinforced their skills and they've trained their skills. And they basically made many sacrifices along the way in order to achieve what they've achieved. But what's so interesting, especially about athletes and where we do connect them, is their challenges are our challenges. They experience failures and setbacks and loneliness and disappointments, financial pressures. They experience everything that we experience, especially post-COVID. Their reality is ours. The one distinction between us and them is they chose that life. From the age of six and seven, they chose a life of hardship and challenge and complexity and failure and disappointments and setbacks and hurdles. They've chosen that life. We didn't choose this life. And they have to develop a set of skills in order to equip themselves for the road that they've taken. And where it's so relevant now is that we can look at their skills that they developed to handle the challenges and the complexity that they face. And we, if we apply it to our own lives, it almost takes us from ordinary to extraordinary because we all have this inner potential. And I, I think that so few people really live up to their fullest potential, really bring that spark to its, its fullest magnitude. So... We're not that different. That's good to know. One of the things that I also kind of thought about as I was reading the book was that the practical tools you offer are actually things that are quite simple. I think we often think that in order to thrive, we have to make major life shifts or, you know, get a full team of people around us to kind of help us uh, get from A to B. Um, but the tips and kind of the practical solutions you offer are really quite simple. Why do you think there's so much resistance? Because a lot of the things that you 
spell out in the book are things that at some level we know we should be doing. But I imagine that one of your greatest tasks is in your profession is trying to help people overcome their resistance to things that doing things that are good for us and healthy and make sense. It's an interesting question because um, James Clear made a, an absolute fortune on simple habits and how they change realities. And I, I think it's a brilliant concept. The, the simpler we can keep the change, the more likely we are to adopt the change. But the reality is we have to understand who we are. We've been repeating the same behaviors thousands and thousands and thousands of times over many, many decades. Now, to take on something new, albeit we understand practically the value, we understand conceptually where it can take us, but to change ourselves is very difficult because what we've been doing is so reinforced. And it is it said that in order to create a new habit, it takes 350 exposures that are conscious to that new habit to create that as a reality for ourselves. So whether it be cold immersion going walking down to the beach and getting into the ocean, if I did that 350 times, it would be like automated. I wake up in the morning, I go down to the ocean, and that's what I do. If I've never been exposed to cold and I am averse to cold, I do not like the cold, and it, it is not something that is part of my reality, and in, in fact, I've done everything to avoid it, it's going to take a lot longer. It's going to be a lot harder in order to achieve that. So if there are prior experiences, prior exposures, instead of 350 exposures to become a habit, now it's going to take around 5,000 conscious efforts to create a new reality for yourself if there's another imprint or blueprint for your life, for your reality, which is the reality for all of us, actually. I think I found reading your book very empowering, particularly at a point where a lot of us feel quite powerless in terms of what's happening around us. um, And we feel like we are far from thriving. But what I really enjoyed about it as well is that it draws on a lot of academic text. um, And you've really done your research. I think there are lots of books that aim to improve your life, but you've really gone and looked at what the recipe elements are for success in this area. If you were to summarize it very quickly, what are the kind of key things you would focus on to kind of have a holistic plan to thrive? Holistic plan, there's, there's, I think we, we have to understand that so much of our potential is neurochemical and molecular. If we can adjust our neurochemistry, like we, we can create the right environment for ourselves, eating the right foods, getting sunlight, uh, taking nutritional supplements, exercising on a regular basis, listening to music that we enjoy, the, these type of habits and behaviors, it actually puts us in a, a very good position to take on the habits and the behaviors that create this transcendence. Mm. And those habits and behaviors are very simple. At its core, it's about understanding that every challenge is an opportunity at its core every challenge has a gift attached to it we just have to move past the challenge in order to understand the gift the second thing from a resilience standpoint from a behavioral perspective that is so important to realize and understand is that there's this concept of metacognition metacognition is i understand myself and i can control myself and it, it boils down to one very simple thing. What do I want the outcome to be in any given situation? That's hard. What do I want the outcome to be and how should I re- respond and behave and think and feel in order to achieve that? And it's a, a stop and a pause and say, this is hard. This is challenging. I'm so frustrated. I'm very reactive right now. But if I move in that direction, continue that direction, the outcome is going to be negative as opposed to this is what I want for my life. This is what I want to achieve. I can't do anything about the past. This is how I need to think, feel, act and ultimately will culminate in the reality over time that we want for ourselves. Thanks so much for joining me, Richard. I must say, I really did find it refreshing. I think it is quite nice and it stands out from a lot of the books that are out there. Thrive by Richard Sutton was published by The Good People at Pan Macmillan and it currently retails for 358 rand.
Love Her by Dan Hill on clarinet. And if you love books, your dial is in the right place at the right time. This is Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. Now, please give a warm Fine Music Radio Book Choice welcome to Melvin Minot. He's here on the line to review a book called The Hungry Red Lion, which is Peter Gowinius's memoir. Sixty years ago, a 27-year-old Swede and his wife started what would become one of South Africa's most famous cultural landmarks, globally known as Rock's Drift Art and Craft Centre in KwaZulu-Natal. Peter Govinius met Ulla at the famous Konsfak Art College in Stockholm. He an art teacher, she a textile artist. They were obviously inspired by the challenge of doing good in an era when the winds of change rushed through Africa, and probably also by the romantic notion of sharing and helping in the dark continent. Shouldn't artists be doing that? They were sent to South Africa by the Swedish Committee for the Advancement of African Arts and Crafts with support from the church, the established missionary route, in other words. Altogether, couples spent 20 years on their African engagement. A great story of empowerment both of themselves and to the many they helped in their peculiar and sometimes unusual way, Peter's memoir, The Hungry Lion, Art and Empowerment at Rockstruff, Tabana, Limele and Odi, is also unusual for its South African art historical worth. In particular, Govinius's contribution to the tradition of lino cut printing in South Africa is enormous and memorable 
as is Ulas, to tapestry and weaving. One must bear in mind that they came on their mission during the darkest days of apartheid South Africa. In fact, one of the interesting facts from this book is how the establishment of Rourke's Drift kept the declaration of that settlement as a whites-only area at bay. In 2018, Peder published his memoirs in Swedish, and now the book is available in English as published by Cape Town's Culture Sus Print Matters imprint. The title refers to a tapestry that inspired Gavinius in the battle against the apartheid regime. In the parable, a nasty inspector gets eaten by a lion. The lion gets ill, but survives unlike Mr. Inspector. The story, told in particular African fashion, was to stay with the Gavinius as he negotiated with his students to express and tell their tales. What makes this finely produced publication with its numerous images so worthwhile a read, is the simple, straightforward honesty with which Govinius narrates and contemplates his experiences in South Africa. Its conversational tone paints vivid pictures of a life often challenged by the strange and unknown of the deep African countryside. But one is over aware of the darkness and sometimes idiotic, if tragic, reality of apartheid at its peaks in the 1960s. Ever optimistic in his encounters and challenges, yet constantly questioning their own behavior, attitude and adventure in the strange country, a threat of melancholy underscores the apartheid realities experienced by the Swedish couple. The story of black South African art and artists is a breakthrough from this repression by dedicated people like the Govinius's. At least two of their young students were put on a pioneering path. Azaria Mabatu and John Mofogeyo achieved world fame. A poignant scene is recalled when Peter introduces the 20-year-old Azaria to his first lino-cut print. The moment of wonder connects directly to the great South African tradition of lino-cut printing that we become a medium of artistic anti-apartheid activism. The Govinius couple's humanist activism found hands-on expression in the tools they provided for the people of the heartland to become artists, crafters, and subsistence from that, and it lives on today. But Peter Govinius's memoirs are not about such grand ideals. It's a clear, open and direct record of a time and place in Africa of a northern foreigner. It is a most affecting read. And as they say in the movies, that's not all. Vanessa Levenstein read the latest bestseller by Barbara Kingsolver. It's called Demon Copperhead. This novel has been described as an Appalachian David Copperfield. Demon Copperhead reimagines Dickinson's story in a modern-day rural setting, and I think this one is set to win some awards. But because Vanessa is an exceptional reader, and she really wanted to get under the skin of where the author was coming from, she went to the library and she took out David Copperfield so that she could reread that too. It's something like a whopping 700 pages, so it's quite a commitment. Vanessa, thank you for your commitment in bringing this title to our attention. Tell us all about it. Intertextuality was a word created in the late 1960s by philosopher Julia Kristeva to describe a continual exchange and relationship building between texts. This quote is compliments of Wordlet. Now, I'm not going to get bogged down by literary theories, but I am going to say that for obvious reasons, the term intertextuality sprung to mind when reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. From the title, it's clear that Kinsolva has based her narrative on Dickens's book. But reading Demon Copperhead prompted me to reread and rethink David Copperfield. And going back to the Victorian novel, it felt like Dickens and Kinsolva were engaging with each other, like they were 
talking to each other. In musical terms, perhaps the closest analogy would be how Natalie Cole reincarnated Unforgettable by recording a duet with her late father. The term intertextuality also made me think of other factors that inform our experience of a book. Are we reading on a Kindle or a hard copy? And most importantly, what are our expectations? After Barbara Kinsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle, in which the subtitle should have been How We as a Family Are Holier Than Thou, I vowed never again to read another Barbara book, until a publicist from Jonathan Ball Publishers assured me that Demon Copperhead was exceptional. And she was right. Damon, nicknamed Demon, is born in the late 80s in the southwest Virginia to a drug-addicted teenage mother. Now the odds are stacked against him from the go. Yet, and here we come to Dickens's influence, angels are often society's outcasts or the unseen. Demon and his mother live in a trailer park and the young boy's guardian angels are their neighbors, the Peggott family. Yes, Peggott, just like David's beloved housekeeper, Peggotty. Goodness, love and selfless devotion make both pegs saviors of their copper boys. Good is contrasted with evil, in both boys' cases abusive and exploitative adults and a corrupt, troubled society. Charles Dickens said of his book, Like many fond parents, I have in my heart of hearts a favourite child, and his name is David Copperfield. Reading, <laughs> another intertextual connection coming up. Charles Dickens, A Life by Claire Tomlin. One gets to know Charles, a man who was deeply moved by the poverty and prejudices of his time, and actively tried to effect change. This empathy clearly stemmed from Dickens' own experience as a young boy sent to work in a factory. We know that King Silver is also deeply committed to social justice. The landscape of Demon's world is the opium industry, while the landscape of David's world's is Victorian England and they were going through the industrialization and that's why children were sent to factories to work. The plot of the first novel follows that of its predecessor but what makes it so fascinating is how King Solver plucks out Dickens's rather archetypal characters and makes them authentic by adding flesh and depth. When you know how a story is going to unravel, the writing has to be strong. You need to be gripped by deep connection with the protagonist King Silver creates attention and suspense throughout. To end, I'll start where both authors begin. The first quote needs no introduction. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. And then far less romantic, King Silver's opening. First, I got myself born. A decent crowd was on hand to watch, and they've always given me that much. The worst of the job was up to me, my mother being, let's just say, out of it. From the start, King Solver lets the reader know that while Dickens mapped out the destination, she won't follow his well-trodden path, as her journey is going to be different. Both books speak to each other, which makes the reading of Demon Copperhead and rereading of David Copperfield exciting and stimulating. Thank you, Vanessa. What an exploration. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there is an exciting literary event taking place in Cape Town this March. The Jewish Literary Festival has fast become a staple feature on the South African Literary Festival calendar. This year, they have a massive lineup of local and international authors to entertain, educate and delight us book lovers. 
Philip Todros is joined by one of the festival organizers, Vanessa Valken. Welcome, you guys. I'm so looking forward to this festival. Tell us all about the lineup. I'm speaking to Vanessa Valken, who is the director or the what will we call you, of the South African Jewish Literary Festival. Yes. And it's really exciting that it's now back for real. So let's start with that, Vanessa, and tell us how you feel about the excitement of this actually happening at the centre, the Garden Centre, and what we can expect. Well, we're very excited because for our last festival, we cancelled it literally three days before as Cape Town went into lockdown in 2020. So we are certainly in person this time. We have a bustling day. 27 or 28 sessions everyone in the Hatfields uh, Centre where the Holocaust Museum is where the Gitlin Library is and we are very excited. And it's also on a very special day. Yes, it's on the 21st of March, a public holiday and Human Rights Day. And will that affect the way you're looking at things in terms of your programme? Absolutely. We're you know, not every session will focus on that but we certainly hope to honor it in um, some of the sessions, even starting with uh, one we have on the arts. We have Des Lindbergh, Aviva Pelham, and Peter Dirk Ace, who all in their own ways did a lot through their arts for human rights or opposing the status quo in South Africa, especially pre-apartheid. We have another great session where two authors who fought apartheid have written about their stories, one being a now UK-based author, John Schlapperbersky. He's written a book about when he was arrested, and he's speaking with Dennis Davis. And the other author with them is Dennis Herson. Also, I noticed that these sessions are not one author. They're essentially groups and put together with a facilitator. Yes, this is something new for us at the Jewish Literary Festival. We have in the past done one-on-one Q&As, author and interviewer. This time where we thought that the sessions would be more exciting if we bring, you know, we find a theme and then we bring in um, a few authors whose books connect around that and they can talk about that. It made it more challenging for us as programmers because you really have to know the books um, a little bit to think about what common threads they have and which you know which authors could go together. And also to get them there all at the same time on the yes, same day. Yes, that's a challenge. <laughs> Logistics too. <laughs> yes. So some of the other sessions and some of the other themes that you have in, in mind? I mean, we have one on sports called Going for Gold, Jews in Sport. We have an ex-South African living in Australia who's written a book about Jewish sportsmen who've been in the Olympics. I mean, Jewish community often has a reputation as not being the most able-bodied on the sport field, but uh, his book is testament to perhaps that not being as true. And he will be speaking with Peter Lindenberg, who was a motorsport racer and a world champion, and they'll be interviewed by Tapfuma Makina, who's an ETV sportscaster. So we're drawing from all sorts of walks of media and, you know, people from all over the world. And right next door to the South African Jewish Museum, there's the exhibition on Ali Bacha. So that oh, ties right. in rather nicely, yes. too. So some That's of the true. other themes that you want to try and cover for us? There's mm. so much happening on that day. It's filled with lots of good activities yes. and food. We mustn't forget about that. And ab- absolutely, we've got um, delicious food. I, I must bring up right now that our guest of honor is the renowned British historian Simon Seabag Montefiore, 
who's been the author of many books, of which you know he's won numerous awards. He's quite an expert on Russia. He's written a book on young Stalin, and then he's done some novels in that genre. But his latest book, which is called The World, is what he'll be talking about at our festival. We are actually bringing him out. So I think his publishers are quite happy with us. And then he will be speaking in Johannesburg as well. The world takes a wide-angle lens on global history through the shenanigans of ruling families through the ages. And I'm reading it at the moment. And I must say civilizations evolved quite a bit since then because the royal families were abominable, the amount of incest and killing of children and you know, just to grab power. I'm um, so pleased that you're so optimistic about it. I think some of the things we see today is also rather scary. Yes, some, yeah, perhaps we haven't evolved as much as uh, we thought. So we'll have him speaking. We have sort of in Ode to Human Rights Day, another topic, Unsettling Apologies. Author and Professor Melanie Judge will discuss her book and the histories of injustice, dispossession and violence in South Africa. There's a global resurgence of demands for acknowledging historical and contemporary wrongs, and her analysis offers insights that should be invaluable on this global debate. We have another session, which I think a lot of people will be eager to hear about, uh, South Africa, what's next? Here we have Colin Coleman, who's a business leader and a political advisor, and whose family has a long political history of struggle. He'll chat to Tony Leon, uh, founder of the Democratic Alliance, and they're going to talk about the ANC and where the country goes from here ahead of the elections. So, yes, we've got a whole uh, range of topics. And biographies, are, are those some of the things that we're going to be talking about or some special? I know that the first one you mentioned with the Viva Pelham, et cetera, there's all bi- you know, biographies. Yes, but- Yeah, I mean, uh, quite a few. We've actually got a session called Telling Someone's Story, and Annika Larson will be talking to Mandy Wiener, who wrote a biography of a sportscaster, Gwim Shalali. Joanne Joel will be talking about... I mean, she's done numerous biographies, and she's a part of our programming team, so she'll be talking about writing biographies. And then we've even got business biographies. We've got a a particular session called Lessons from Entrepreneurs, where Alan Ambor, who was the founder of the Spurs Steak Ranch chain, and Rail Levitt, who's had numerous business successes, will talk about their own stories. I mean, those are more autobiographical. Those aren't biographies, but uh, we're going to hear about... So lots to hear and do. Lots, lots, lots. And price of a ticket, how you get them, it does, I know, include lunch and even a cappuccino. Yes, But how do we go about getting them? Because it's only about a month to go, so you better buy because there's a limited number of people that you you can accommodate. Yes, um, you can get tickets on Quicket. They're 350 rand, which I think for a lunch, a cappuccino, and a full day of programming, 95 is quite a deal. And you don't have to convince me. Yes. And well, I don't think you have to yeah. convince any of the fine music radio people. Good. So I think that's enough to keep them going with their appetites. And guys, be sure to get to the South African Jewish Literary Festival on the 21st of March. We've been speaking to Vanessa Valken, who is the director of that festival. And that just about wraps up our February show. Time flies when you're reading great books. Huge thanks, Rick and Dave, for the great music as always, to Mzuru Makete for building this show for us, to all our readers and reviewers and authors and publishers, and of course, thanks to Exclusive Books, 
who sponsor the show with such passion every month. If you missed any of the titles or reviews in today's show, you can find the podcast of the show on fmr.co.za. And of course, you can also download the FMR app. We'll be back in two weeks' time with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. And we're going to be playing out with You Raise Me Up by the angel voices of the Tigerberg Children's Choir. If you're listening in your car, crank up the volume and give the people in the car next to you something to stare at as you sing along at the top of your voice. You've been tuned into Book Choice with me, your host, Paige Nick. And until we meet again, happy reading.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 